Have you ever been uh, boarding a plane and when you uh, pass by the rich people in first class, they, they kind of look up at you and just wonder what it's like to be in your shoes and have to make your way all the way back to the cheap seats? There's always just this little hint of scorn or superior, superiority on the faces of the first class people. Um, but once you've fir- flown first class, you're, you're ruined for economy air travel. The, the cramped seat, the tiny peanuts, the strangers elbowing and jockeying for position on that tiny little armrest. These things aren't any longer just minor inconveniences, but these are injustices. They are lacking. Uh, these are ways that the airline is lacking the recognition of your superiority, of your first class identity. Now, I've flown first class, I think, twice in my life, not because I purchased a first class ticket, but because I was rebooked or comped because the airline made a mistake. Now, I remember sitting in the waiting area uh, when they made the call for those traveling first class, and I jumped right up and walked as fast as I could to to the gate. And then I sat down in those large puffy seats to watch all the other people, the less people, trudge past back to the cheap seats and thought, you know, maybe if they had worked a little bit harder, they could sit sit where I am. I hadn't even bought the ticket, but the line between appreciation of comforts and personal entitlement was in fact very, very thin. Now, do you know how this idea of first class got started? It wasn't with airlines. It wasn't even with steamships, but it was with stagecoaches. And the owners were trying to figure out, how do we monetize this tiny little area in the stagecoach more effectively? There's not much room in a stagecoach. So it's not like they could install these big, lay-flat, comfy seats like they have in first class on airlines. But stagecoaches traveled over unpaved roads. And so when it rained, many times they would get stuck. And when that happened, it was up to the passengers to get out and to help get the stagecoach unstuck. So the owners devised a plan. We could probably charge customers to not have to get out and push. That was first class ticket. Second class, you don't have to push, but you have to get out. And third class ticket or coach, you were required to get down in the mud and lift or push or whatever until the stagecoach was unstuck. That's how we have first class travel. And this really does sort of represent, it's symbolic of the the way that the world tends to work. And we are willing to pay not merely for a bit more comfort, but for that feeling of superiority, that feeling of smugness that first class people have as the poor people file back to coach that comes from sitting in better seats and living in better neighborhoods and having other people serve our interests. This is typically the way that our world works. Well, Jesus comes in with a statement like the one that Stephanie read, and he sort of disrupts this arrangement, saying in effect that the way to a first-class life is through a third-class life ticket. The pathway to real and lasting contentment is by giving up one's 
privilege. It is by serving rather than being served. It is actively working to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. Why? Because this was the pathway that Jesus himself walked. Jesus says that we are to save our lives by losing them. The atheist poet A.E. Hausman said that this is the most important truth about life ever uttered. And yet it's a truth that we often resist, that we almost always find difficult not only to believe, but certainly to live in practice. Now, life in this verse is the Greek word suke, which is the, the psych part of psychology. It is our inner life. It is the vital life force that sustains our inner being. It is the us at our most basic. In the Hebrew scriptures, this word is nefesh. The Lord formed humanity from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, and he became a living being. Suke and nefesh basically mean the same thing, our inmost person. The problem is that once we are granted this life, once God breathes this life, nefesh or suke, into our body, once we are granted life, we assume that it's ours to do with as we please, and we get clingy about this life. We get possessive and protective about this life. We get competitive. And instead of looking to God to sustain what he created, we cling for dear life to people, to money, to possessions, to alcohol or drugs or food. We cling for life to political ideology or to career, or just to being right, which not only closes us off from experiencing the life that God wants to grant us, but it closes us off from the opportunity of lending a hand to bring life to others because we see others as competitors, not as objects of God's divine love and on which he bestows his mercy and grace and asks us, to do, to do the very same thing. This native clinginess is then reinforced by the language of advertising, of athletic competition. It's reinforced by political marketing. And often, if we're being honest, it's reinforced by the institutional church. It's this language of, of scarcity, this language of loss, this language of fear, this loss, this idea that the world is a zero-sum game, and so we should be taking and defending what is rightly ours. And over time, if we're not constantly vigilant, this competitive logic, it settles down into our life, into our inmost being as the immutable logic of the world. Jesus says instead, we save life, we nurture life, we find and experience the richness of life that God intends only, only by giving up our claim upon it. 
And this is the inverted logic of the kingdom that is at the very root of Jesus' teaching and perhaps not accidentally at virtually the dead center of Mark's gospel. In this part of the story, we're moving from the first eight chapters of Jesus' ministry that is opposing all that oppresses God's people through these miraculous healings and feedings and the casting out of demons. And we're moving and transitioning now to the the final half, the last eight chapters of Jesus's determined journey to the cross. And Mark marks this transition by giving us a statement that vividly summarizes the essence of the kingdom of God and why it is so difficult for us to accept it, that we are called to lose our life in order to save it. Over the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, we've looked repeatedly at Jesus' questions to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And then who do you, the disciples, the followers of Christ, say that I am? And Peter comes up with this answer. You are no mere rabbi. You're no mere miracle worker, but you are God's Messiah. But we learn quickly after that that Peter and Jesus' idea of what that means are very, very different. The Jewish people, including Peter and the rest of Jesus' disciples, were likely looking for something very specific, a powerful revolutionary leader. A leader perhaps like King David who would come and liberate them from this oppressive Roman rule and do so decisively and most likely militarily. So these same disciples, these same Jewish people were deeply confused and often disappointed by the kind of leader that Jesus was. Just as we likely would have been had we been in their shoes because even with 2020 hindsight, even with access to Jesus's words now for centuries, even knowing the rest of the story that the Son of Man was rejected and suffered and killed, we still tend to look for God to come into our lives in strength and in power and in shows of force, not only against our legitimate real enemies, but also against those people that just annoy us and that we don't like too much. But in Jesus, friends, while we may not get the God that we want, we receive the God that we need. A God who doesn't control us or overpower us, but but a God who stoops to serve us. A God who doesn't coerce us, but meets us in our brokenness to heal us, to renew us, and to redeem us. Losing one's life to save it is at once a summary statement of the posture of God towards us. And as we know in a way that even Peter didn't, that these words became concretely, literally true of Jesus. That he did in fact lose his life only to receive it back in the resurrection. This losing of life isn't an abstraction. This losing of life wasn't a metaphor for the one who calls us to it, 
but it was quite literal. It was quite concrete. And so I wonder, and maybe we should all be wondering if Mark is suggesting to us that this logic of the kingdom, losing life to find it, may become literal, may become concrete to those who choose to become Christ followers. That this life might involve more than just a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives, but a life that is thrown completely out of alignment with the logic of the world and what everyone around us seems to be pursuing. And maybe we find that this sort of principled resistance to conventional wisdom, maybe we find this unease with diligent self-protection and self-dealing actually opens up to us a fuller life and reveals how this contrary logic is actually woven sometimes in a hidden way, but woven deeply nonetheless into the very fabric of the world. But we have to be looking. We have to be discerning. But maybe you've experienced what psychologists call a helper's high, that our brains are literally hardwired to release endorphins when we give sacrificially to others literally giving up what represents life to us, that is money, time, resources, so that someone else might experience more life, it triggers reward centers in our brain. The inverted logic of the kingdom, turns out, isn't abstract at all. It's embedded even in our biology. And some studies have shown that more generous people live longer and are healthier and happier when they are alive. Maybe you've chosen to give up a lucrative but ultimately unfulfilling job to take on one that is less profitable, but it uses your skills to serve people in need or just to bring joy and healing into the world. Maybe you've given up the visceral pleasures of alcohol or overeating or drugs, which at the time of using seemed indispensable to life. That was your life, and so you held on to it. Maybe you've given that up for a sobriety that, though incredibly difficult, is much more a life that is much more present, a life that is much more centered, a life that is much more fully alive and much more whole. Maybe you've taken on the burdens of an ailing parent and all the hardship and sometimes the indignity indignity that that requires only to experience a life-affirming love between you and that ailing parent that displaces much of the discomfort and the inconvenience that comes with that territory. These friends are the experiences of losing life or what we think life to be in order to truly find it. And this isn't merely giving up a few comforts here and there to try and commune with Jesus. While that may, there is certainly a place for that, that giving up 
of something that we know to be comfortable in order to experience a loss or experience the kind of deprivation that Jesus experienced. There's certainly a use for that as a discipline in the Christian life, but it can also devolve into an asceticism that is sort of self-legitimating and self-promoting. This losing of life to find it is so much more than that. It's in fact a call to a continual lifelong discipleship with the cross at the center. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them to come and die. And that death happens at the moment of entry. And the call of discipleship is learning to extrapolate from that throughout life what that death actually means and how life comes through death, not through pursuing what we perceive to be life and holding on to that at all cost. And it is in that death that life is found. Not in the abstract, but in a real life, in literal life, and in eternal life. Because there's a second part of this small phrase that has a promise attached. Jesus says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Friends, that's the secret of the gospel, the secret of the kingdom. That's the secret to joy. But it doesn't look like that on the way in. And we have to trust the God who created life in us to begin with, that he knows where life is to be found and he knows where true fulfillment and true eternal joy. And so let's ask him to lead us in that way and to provide that fulfilling, joyful life for those who would seek to give it up for him and for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for all of those who gather here under the umbrella of InTown, both in person and online, and for those who are unable to join us this morning, we pray that we would all find our lives in you, that we would find our purpose in serving the world that you have made, and that we would trust you that it is in giving up some of the things that feel so essential to life, that are really taking life away and that we need to give up the claim upon those things, if not the things themselves, in order to find true being, true life, true joy. And I pray that we would sense that there is joy to be found because we know that you are the one who went to the cross because of the joy set before you, that you gave up your literal life so that we could have it and have life forevermore. And we pray in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as we prepare to come to the table, let's confess our faith. Once again, we're using this morning the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question 
31, and we come to confess our faith as we prepare to come to the table so that we as a community have aligned ourselves around the central truths of the gospel, the central truth of the grace of God that is held out for all for the asking. So let's take hold of it now as we confess our faith. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Thank you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, This is my body. It is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God, and they're for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. Take a few moments now to serve communion if you are partaking or to serve someone in your household and we'll come back for the conclusion of our worship service in just a few moments.